is Lisa Nearing with another episode of Soft Skills 101, Life Skills for a Digital Age. We are sponsored by the Ultimate Homeschool Podcast Network, along with True North Homeschool Academy. True North Homeschool Academy offers live online classes for K-12 through graders. Students can see, hear, and interact with their teachers and fellow classmates. This is not just passive learning, but dynamic, interactive, and fun. We offer self-paced courses as well that students can begin any time of year, including American Sign Language, Biotechnology, Culinary Arts, Forensic Science, Veterinary Science, 3D Printing, Art and Design, and so much more. You can choose classes a la carte or in a bundle, making already affordable classes a homeschool mama's dream. Check out all of our programs and classes at truenorthhomeschoolacademy.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Pinterest, and Instagram. And of course, we'd love for you to download and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. This month, we've been focusing on the soft skill of critical thinking skills, and I am super excited to introduce to you my friend and fellow teacher at True North Homeschool Academy, Adam Prusan. Adam Prusan was born and raised in Seattle and graduated from St. John's College, Santa Fe, New Mexico in 1983 with a bachelor's in liberal arts. He then served six years as an officer in the U.S. Navy Supply Corps. In 1993, he began a 10-year career in public policy, and from 2003 until 2012, he worked as a consultant and investment manager. In 2011, he earned a master's degree in teaching from the University of Phoenix, and in 2012, he moved to Las Vegas, where he assisted in opening two new charter schools, Leadership Academy of Nevada and Founders Academy of Las Vegas, teaching literature, history, geography, civics, and philosophy. He continues to work as an investment manager while teaching courses to various homeschool groups, including, of course, True North Homeschool Academy. Currently, Mr. Prusin is teaching world religions and world history at True North Homeschool Academy and has also taught civics. Today, we'll be talking about how to use literature to teach critical thinking skills. So welcome to the show, Adam. I'm so glad you're here to join us and talk about critical thinking skills. And Adam is teaching world history and world religions this semester and this year. Um, last semester, he, told, he taught civics at True North Homeschool Academy, and he's giving our students a run for their money. They are loving his classes and working really hard. So <laughs> Adam, I'm so glad you're on the show today um, to talk about critical thinking. I'm, I'm glad to be here. I'm glad that people are loving the class. They are. Yeah, I'm hearing great feedback. Well, I, t- I, tell, I tell them that if they're having half as much fun as I am, then they're doing great. Right? <laughs> I think they're having a good time. <laughs> I'm, I'm always having fun. That's awesome. So you have an interesting background, um, and you love to teach uh, humanities, and you do such a great job of integrating a lot of different subject matter into one and what can you tell us about critical thinking skills and the importance of learning them and how to, how to learn them? That's what a lot of people are really wondering, like, how do you even learn critical thinking skills? And, and that's, you know, that's the thing is, as I was saying to you before, I, the, I come from a great books background. And so the, in my college, I went to St. John's college and at my college, it would have, it would have been, um, especially way, way back in the 80s, it would have been a little strange for members of the faculty to sit around and think, now, how are we going to teach ki- kids the, their critical thinking skills? Mm-hmm. Um, but we learned critical thinking skills, and I think, I think the way you do it is 
you you have to teach critical thinking skills in concrete contexts. So you learn you learn your uh, skills of quantitative reasoning and logical reasoning from doing numbers and 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 doing mathematics like geometry, and you learn your you learn your other critical thinking skills from closely reading and analyzing texts, preferably classic texts, preferably pre- preferably texts that are hard mm-hmm. and that are rich. You want you want the best thing I think a teacher can do to help to help students in a humanities class develop critical thinking skills is to confront them with a rich, difficult text, especially a text that is, when I say rich, a text that is capable of bearing multiple interpretations, multiple different layers of meaning, a text that might have irony in it or hidden jokes in it. Um, those those kinds of texts. So and and you know it's it's pretty obvious which those are, right? I mean, many of many of the great writings of the ancient Greeks and Romans, um, the Bible. I, I was just I just came from teaching the world world religions class, and we were, were we were puzzling over a couple chapters of of, uh, of uh, the Hebrew scriptures, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, get, peeling peeling away the layers of the onion pointing out to the students how, how hard these things are and, and how deep some of the questions are. Um, we, 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 got to, we got to the first step, which is that we got a lot of glazed looks on people's faces this morning, um, which, is, which is great. I mean, God, that is so important. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, other, the, the other thing, if I could just throw one other thing out there that, that – I've seen because I've only been teaching for for just under ten years now, uh, and, and I'm including my my time as a student teacher. And something I've noticed about uh, high school age kids these days that's so different than when I was I was in high school in the seventies, mm-hmm. and and many of my teachers, especially many of my younger teachers had been had been hippies you know in the 60s and there was still a lot of rebellion in the air mm-hmm. we argued with our teachers a lot we didn't we didn't accept at face value things that they told us mm-hmm. um i i've gotten a little bit worried uh th- these last 10 years that high school age kids today are a little too docile that that mm-hmm. that a teacher can say something to them that even is patently ridiculous and won't get challenged, at least not fast enough, you know? And so, so I, that's one of the things I try to do is, is try to overcome that timidity and try to encourage students to, to challenge me. Mm-hmm. If I say something that doesn't make, that doesn't seem to make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, then, then the other, the other two things are that, uh, you don't. You don't want managing ignorance is an extremely important. Hmm. And the challenges, the two challenges are to teach kids number one, not to stand pat on your own ignorance. If you don't know something, you know you should probably find out. You should probably look it up. Um, but also not to be afraid of your own ignorance. 
students. Mm-hmm. Um, that's another thing. This is not just students. Something I something I've found more and more and more in our society, um, partly because we have we have such a customer service oriented society. Mm-hmm. You walk in the supermarket and you ask the you ask one of the people in one of the supermarket employees, you know, where are the Cheerios? And if they don't know, they're really afraid to say they don't know. I mean, okay, so the guy, the guy just got the job two days ago and he doesn't know where everything is in the store yet. And so the correct answer is, sir, I don't know, but let me find out for you, right? Mm-hmm. right. Um, but no, people are afraid to admit their own ignorance. Yeah. And it- it so, does seem like there's this studied indifference too of of people acting like it's okay it's okay to not care. But the other thing I was just thinking about when you were talking about the docility with kids is that there's this pragmatism in the world that that there's got to be one right answer. Um, and when I mean I've been in a couple lit classes uh, and my daughter has been where there's been given a correct answer to think about. Um, say the scarlet letter and the meaning of it all. And in in my way of thinking, there it is so multi-layered. Like you're talking about the Bible. There's there's the pragmatic meaning, there's the symbolic meaning, there's the poetic meaning. There it is this layered, rich, diverse, and it's for us for so many different situations and time. And to give one pat answer just seems to diminish the beauty of of literature in so many ways. And it, but I think we're in that pragmatic way of thinking as a culture and a society, right? Where there's just one answer and if you get it right, woohoo, and you go on to the next thing. And and the, yeah, no, that I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think one of the, one of the uh, especially sad things about that is that, is that that attitude is more likely to infect the, a lot of the good students yeah, <laughs> because because yeah. so so this this happened this happened to me in a ninth grade in a ninth grade class uh, a few years ago when I was I was teaching at uh, founder I helped start uh, Founders Academy in, which is in Las Vegas that is the uh, Barney Charter School okay. uh, that so so it uses a curriculum created by Hillsdale College oh, cool. and so we had this we had a ninth the ninth grade history class was. Uh, I think it was Western Civilization One, okay. and the tenth grade was Western Civilization Two. So I was teaching Western Civilization One, and we were we were comparing um, the thought of Plato and Aristotle, and we were trying to summarize one of their one of their major disagreements about about you know what I don't remember which which of their disagreements they had several, but I don't remember which of the disagreements it was. And I got I got a couple of students in the class to one of them explained what Plato's answer to this question was, and the and the next one explained what Aristotle's answer was, and then I tried to sum it up to sum up the specifically the, the disagreement between the two of them, and it and it was it was one of the good students in the class, and and I'm 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 kind of putting I'm kind of putting quotation marks around the word good because because she was wonderful wonderful young gal and and very much not only not only a careful student but also a sort of a miss goody two shoes right mm-hmm. always the one taking notes always the one getting her homework in on time you know yeah. and 
So, of course, she was taking careful notes about this whole discussion. And when I, so, so, of course, when I finished summarizing the, the, the disagreement between Plato and Aristotle, she said, okay, so, so who was right? Which is it? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I said, I said uh, Olivia, I don't have the first darn clue. <laughs> yeah. Well, only on that, by the way, on that occasion, I didn't use the word darn. I use, I use a slightly stronger word. Uh-huh. And, and I did that very, very deliberately because I wanted, I wanted to shock the kids yeah. and make them up a little bit. Um, and, and it worked. Uh-huh. And, and, it, and it, but it really, it really uh, was, it was frustrating for, for, mm-hmm. for several of the kids in class for, for a while that, mm-hmm. you know, there is no right answer to that question. Oh, and that really demands that we can hold a, an idea, more than one idea in our head at the same time. It, and really, and, and it's not just like there is one way, because when you're playing a video game, if you get the right answer, you get to go to the next level. But when you're playing real life, you have to, somebody can be irritating and lovable at the same time. I mean, people can be, have a strong opinion and a weak opinion at the same time. Um, there can be a right and wrong answer at the same time. There's very few like totally evil and totally good things. Rarely ever. (laughs) Rarely ever. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and uh, this generation of of students is that, see, that's the, the, the reason why I mentioned texts a minute ago is that I don't think human brains work very well in a vacuum. I don't think that, I think, you know, what, I don't think you can really just sort of contemplate the infinite very successfully. Um, you have to have you have to have concrete stuff to think about if you're going if you're going to practice your critical thinking skills. And I, and one of the one of the huge problems I've seen with high school age kids nowadays is that because we have we've been we have been bad at teaching things like history and teaching things like geography and making sure that everybody, for example, making sure that everybody knows the Greek myths um, and the, and the Roman myths and the, and their, their pantheons of gods. And we, we haven't given uh, uh, high school age kids enough raw material to think with. Um. And so when you, you know, you're reading you're reading a line in Herodotus or or any or any other any other ancient history and in one one relatively short sentence there might be the name of a god or a goddess or of an ancient hero there might be a place name or the name of a river there might be there might be the name of some event you know, all in one sentence. So there, there's, there are three crucial facts. Mm. And if you don't know what those three words mean, you, how can you even begin to process the sentence? Right. You have yeah. no idea what was just said. Yeah. So, so I, enc- I, encourage, I encourage students, hey, you know what? I don't care if it takes you three hours to read one page when we're reading this particular page, I mean, there's plenty of plenty of time, plenty of times where you can read fast and you can skim and you can, you know. But this particular page on this this chapter of the Bible, 
I want you to make sure you know what every single word means before you go on to the next word. If that mm-hmm. means you, so I want you to have a dictionary and an atlas and a and a um, and a uh, an encyclopedia of, of the Bible. You know, I want you to have those those reference books in your hands while you're reading this, so that when you come up to a place name, you can pull out the atlas and find out where where are they talking about. Mm-hmm. Right? And you can look words up in the dictionary if you're not familiar with them and so forth. You know, know what you're, that's part, that's a really important part of close reading. You can't get to the, you can't get to the second layer of meaning or the third layer of meaning if you haven't gotten to the first layer yet. Right, right. So what do you say to parents who are, you know, they didn't grow up in the seventies, they grew up in the nineties or, you know, what do you say to parents who feel like they didn't have a good enough education to even know where to start and yet, they, they're homeschooling or they're trying to supplement their kids' public or private school education. What do you say to them about, about helping develop critical thinking skills in, in their own kids? And, and you're right. I mean, I was looking for resources for people. And there are some math games and stuff for critical thinking. But other than lit analysis, which that word kind of scares people in the high school levels, you don't really come across any kind of materials that will help people teach or know what to do. And so what are, you, what are your suggestions for people hungry to, to do this, to, to think deeply, to get beyond the obvious where they don't even know where to start? I think the um, pick, picking, first of all, tr- trying, to focus on, trying to focus on depth rather than breadth would be a really good start. And so, and so pick a short, deep text and then, and then try to read it word by word, and make sure you know what every word means. I, look, could, could you find a better place to start than the book of Genesis? Oh, it's great. I yeah. mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you could, you could spend, if, if, you were, if you were teaching, if you were a homeschool parent teaching, let's say, uh, like a seventh or eighth grade level um, uh, pupil, you could probably spend a month on the first few chapters mm-hmm. of Genesis. Right. Look, looking, looking through, you know, looking at what all the words mean, comparing different translations. Um, it it maybe if you, maybe if you have access to to Rabbi Fisher or to me, and somebody can help you with what what the actual Hebrew original was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, not 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 for every word, but for certain certain crucial things. Yeah. Um, and 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 a lot, and of course, a lot of the good Bible study guides point out what the what the what the word, the original languages were, yeah. uh, what the original language meant, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, and um, and looking up, looking up place names as you go. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's I. Pick, pick, I, I love pick, that. Yeah. yeah, we we just read Job for our junior high world lit or lit and comp class, and oh my gosh, one of the kids pointed out we were talking about epic and lyric poetry. And um, I was like, okay, it's an epic poem. And one of the kids pointed out, it, there's pieces of lyrical poetry in it throughout, which I was like, oh my gosh, they totally got this. And, you know, just from simple definitions like that, it was, it was, so, it was such a great, awesome moment. Well, I mean, and look, and the, the, the other thing about the book of Job is that, is that before the poetry starts, you have... What is what is practically a, the first couple chapters of Job are practically a um, they're almost at the Dr. Seuss level. 
You know, they are, they are, uh, they're some of the simplest, easiest Hebrew. It, 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 that's first year Hebrew. And then wow. you get to the, and then you get to the poet, poetical parts and it's like sixth year, you yeah. know, it's, it's postgraduate level. Right. I, I, I can't make anything of it myself at all. I have to use the translation. For wow! The, wow! For the, for the poetical parts, yeah. Um, but it, it, but it does require that you come to it without. You have to put aside what you think you know about it in some ways. I mean, yeah. you have to, you have to go. Okay, I'm going to be a student too. And I think for many of us, we want to, we want to have the right answers too. I mean, getting through adulthood and life and not making major mistakes is is hard enough. But when we put aside what we know to come to to learning as a student too, that takes a whole level of humility, really, you know? <laughs> oh, ab- absolutely. Oh, by the way, by the way, did anybody tell you, uh, ac- according to the Talmud, what the, what the rabbis say, um, who wrote the book of Job? No, no. Because th- th- this, this, will, this will be an interesting, you know, the little, little tickler to add to your, to your, to your discussion. Yeah. Um, According to the Talmud, the book of Job was written by Moses. Okay. Actually, one of the kids did come up with that. Okay, good. Yeah, because we always do an author's bio, too. Because, I again, I like try to contextualize things for the kids. Like, I know you do. Of just, like, who wrote this? What was their their, uh, whole motivation, you know? Yeah, and and, and the truth is it it, it kind of adds to the mystery because, first of all, Moses never wrote anything else remotely like that. You know, uh-huh. he wrote he wrote the five books of Moses yeah. and Job, right? Uh, yeah. So he never. I mean, Job is like standing all by itself in Moses's you know whole catalog. Wow. And that so that's something to, that's something to puzzle over. And then of course there's a question of when did he find time? Yeah. Because <laughs> he was leading the millions out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, so what a gifted gifted person <laughs> maybe he stuttered a little but still <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah I love it okay so so coming at coming at stuff with the with an attitude of being a student yourself and really digging deeply into a piece of of text that's 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 deep with encyclopedias and geography resources and bible um and, you know, lexicons or whatever, um, and really thinking, just taking the time to do it and setting aside the time to take the time. That's a big, a big thing. Yeah. And then, and then, and then the other, the other really crucial um, learning technique that you get from, from the sort of great books college approach is, is always try to put yourself into and this is extremely hard to do. In fact, in some cases, it might even be impossible, but you try to do it anyway. Try to put yourself into the shoes of the person who wrote it. And constantly be asking yourself, when, you know, when, when Plato wrote this or when Sophocles wrote this, what was he trying to say? What point was he trying to make? Mm-hmm. What did what did he, how did he expect his audience would understand this? Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah. for, I mean, I just mentioned Sophocles. You, so I fell into that almost by accident. But so, so it's a really crucial part if you're if you're going to read the Oedipus Cycle by mm-hmm. Sophocles. It's really crucial to know that 
at, at least at least the first play and the last play, uh, Oedip- you know, Oedipus Rex and and uh, and uh, Antigone, those those three, those two plays. The one in the middle, Oedipus and Colonus, is a little bit different. Um, but but those first, the, the first one and the last one. You when you when you, when students read those plays by Sophocles today, they've got to read them with the understanding that those were stories that everyone in the audience already knew. Mm-hmm. So I I usually when I when I teach those plays I usually start out with oh I don't know I st- I usually start out with Superman, right? So tell me about tell me about Superman. Um, you know, where does he come from? What's his real name? What, you know, what, what, what are, what are his superpowers? What are his vulnerabilities? Who are his enemies? You know, and, and of course the kids always know the answers, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, he comes from Krypton and his real name is Kal-El and on earth he goes by Clark Kent and, and his enemy is Lex Luthor and he's vulnerable to kryptonite and, you know, well, okay. So if you already know the story, then wh- how come, how come the last Superman movie that got released made $600 million? Yeah. If everybody already knows the story. Right. Right. Cause we love to hear our, we love to hear our hero stories. Yeah. We, and, 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 and we, we went to see this one because of this particular actor and this particular director and this, this set of special effects that were done. So it's, it's the, 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 the interest is in the, this particular telling. And so, mm. so that's, that's an, another important, the, the reason that's so important is that, is that when you read Oedipus Rex, when you read Sophocles Oedipus Rex, because there were probably a hundred other Oedipus Rex plays, most of them were lost. Uh-huh. But when you read Sophocles, you've got to read it with the, with the idea that, that the Greeks in Athens who were watching the play knew the story already. Mm. So, the reason they were sitting there is because they wanted to hear Sophocles' poetry, his take on the story, how he expressed each stage of the plot. Uh-huh. And, and that, that makes you focus more on those elements, right? Yeah. And, you know, when we think of ancient literature, even medieval literature, or even not that, you know, a couple hundred year old literature, we think the one we got is the one that there was. So, I mean, just the fact that you're saying, wow, there's this whole context that we don't even know about. And we have to... We have to think beyond what we know in a way to yeah. really get to the point is, yeah. Yeah, and, that, and, that, and that, lets, that lets you ask questions about, okay, why did he tell the story this way? Right. Why, why, did he, why, did he, why did he give this plot point to this character and not that character? Why did he reveal this, this secret in this, of this time and not before, not after? You know, lets you ask those kinds of questions. Yeah. Well, and so literature can really, what's the whole point of really getting deep into literature? Because do we really need literature in life? I mean, like I'm kind of like a story addict, so I kind of need it, you know. <laughs> but but what, is the, what is the great big point of literature? And, and, you know, you're talking about ancient literature. I mean, what is, from your point of view, what's the whole point, really? There, there. Obviously, there are lots of points, but but I like to think of what the way Roger Scruton answers these kinds of questions. Um, and th- for those who haven't read Roger Scruton, he's he's a wonder he's a wonderful resource. Um, why don't you start answering that question by by how the Greeks answered it? 
you know, how Aristotle answered it, that, that what's the, what is the point of, of a tragic play? Mm-hmm. And I think, I think Plato and Aristotle said that the point of a tragic play is that, is that it, it's to produce catharsis. Why do people ride roller coasters? Mm-hmm. Well, they want the thrill. They want the sort of, well, what's exact, what exactly is the thrill? Mm-hmm. And you and you and you well because you go down really fast or you go up or you twist around well what why is that a thrill well okay so a lot of psychologists would tell you well because you're you're tapping into your own fear of death mm. you're sort of experiencing danger but in a safe way mm-hmm. yeah and that's the thrill uh-huh. right the the whole idea of catharsis is to help one sort of settle into the limitations of mortality, mm. right? That to, 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 to help one acknowledge and deal with one's own mortality. And who we are in this time and place. Like, and why we, are we here now? I mean... Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Something that I've, I've said to my students, and, you know, again, I hope I don't get in too much trouble for it, but in, in my humble opinion, because if, if we accept... Aristotle's idea that the role of tragedy is catharsis. So tragedy is almost like a spiritual medicine for mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. So what I, t- what I tell my students is if that's true, then comedy is actually a much more serious business than tragedy. Mm-hmm. Because tragedy, in, in the Greek sense, a tragic play is rehearsing these well-worn, well-known myths and, and it's rehearsing myths about, about people who had a certain destiny. Mm-hmm. They had a certain fate. Right. You know, Oedipus had no choice about what was going to happen to him. Mm-hmm. So by, by rehearsing that, we become more comfortable about, the, about our own fates. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, like I say, that, that means comedy is actually a more serious business because comedy is not well-worn stories. Comedy is... If you look at the comedies of Aristophanes, those are new stories that he created. And why did he create them? He created them. He created them to make a point yeah. and, to, and to convince people and to, to, to sell people on a particular idea mm. that he had. And so when I, when I teach The Clouds by Aristophanes, which his most commentator, probably a majority of commentators, consider The Clouds to, okay, it's just a comedy. Uh-huh. And yeah, he's making fun of Socrates in the clouds. He's making Socrates out to be a sort of a buffoon, maybe even a dangerous buffoon. Mm-hmm. But it's all in good fun, and it's just it's just it's just fun. It's just for laughs. Mm. That's a majority of the commentators. Yeah, but there's a there's a strong minority, and and I I've, I've gotten more and more a fan of the minority view, which is. No, uh, Aristophanes was dead serious, and he really and he really thought Socrates was dangerous, and he was really trying to call Socrates out, and his play may have even had a, a role in the condemnation and trial and death of Socrates. Wow! Um, in the same way that Saturday Night Live mm-hmm. beating up on a particular politician over and over and over and over again. I'm not thinking of any politician in particular. Yeah. By the way. It's just what they do. <laughs> yeah. but, but maybe it's just for laughs, just for yucks, just for giggles. Maybe, maybe, 
it's mm-hmm. deadly serious. Yeah. You know, maybe it could maybe it could lead to somebody being voted out of office or yeah. impeached, right? Mm-hmm. Um, comedy is potentially a very, very serious business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's hard to write. My daughter wrote 10 comedy sketches last year and it took her all year to write the and they're really funny. But you didn't it was that. Yeah, she'll I'll have to have her send you some because they were awesome. Yeah, yeah, I have to see them. Yeah, they're good. Yeah. Okay. Well, I we could talk all day. I, I'm gonna have you on the podcast again if you'll come back because you're just such a wealth of knowledge and, and real wisdom. And I, I really appreciate that. I hope those ideas are helpful to people. Yeah, yeah. But, I'll put extensive show notes as always with some of these people and places you've mentioned and some books and things of that nature. And yeah. Okay. Thanks for being on, Adam. We'll talk to you soon. My pleasure. Take care, Lisa. Be well. As always, thank you for joining us for another episode of Soft Skills 101, Life Skills for a Digital Age. Stay tuned for next week's episode, where I'll be joined by my husband, Dr. David Neary, to talk about listening skills and how they can contribute to not only the development of critical thinking skills, but peace in your home. We'd love to hear your comments and questions and appreciate your listening sharing, and downloading this podcast. We'll see you next week for another episode of Soft Skills 101, Life Skills for a Digital Age. Thanks for joining us.